Hey friends, M. Faring here. I am so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope we're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Welcome back, OOBTers. Before we dive in today, how about we do a bit of a check-in about our Bible reading so far? How are you doing? What have you learned up to this point? Think about how much we have already learned together. Don't you love that? Don't you want more of that? I know I do. And if you're behind or had to skip episodes, please don't beat yourself up about it. No one minds at all here, especially not God. Any time we spend reading and studying in God's Word is time well spent. I'm so excited that you are here today, and I hope you continue to join me on this in-depth chronological Bible study journey. Moving on, let's continue to read Job's story together. So far in our study, he's lost everything except his life, and today he had to listen to bad advice from the second of his three friends. In the last episode, we heard from Eliphaz. Today, we will hear from Bildad. Job 8 from the Message Translation reads, Bildad from Shuha was next to speak. How can you keep on talking like this? You're talking nonsense and noisy nonsense at that. Does God mess up? Does God Almighty ever get things backward? It's plain that your children sinned against him. Otherwise, why would God have punished them? Here's what you must do, and don't put it off any longer. Get down on your knees before God Almighty. If you're as innocent and upright as you say, it's not too late. He'll come running. He'll set everything right again. Reestablish your fortunes. Even though you're not much right now, you'll end up better than ever. Put the question to our ancestors. Study what they learned from their ancestors. For we're newcomers at this with a lot to learn and not too long to learn it. So why not let the ancients teach you? Tell you what's what. Instruct you in what they knew from experience. Can mighty pine trees grow tall without soil? Can luscious tomatoes flourish without water? Blossoming flowers look beautiful before they're cut or picked but without soil or water, they wither more quickly than grass. That's what happens to all who forget God. All their hopes come to nothing. They hang their life from one thin thread. They hitch their fate to a spider web. One jiggle and that thread breaks. One jab and the web collapses. Or they're like weeds springing up in the sunshine, invading the garden, spreading everywhere, overtaking the flowers, getting a foothold even in the rocks, But when the gardener rips them out by the roots, the garden doesn't miss them one bit. The sooner the godless are gone, the better. The good plants can grow in their place. There is no way that God will reject a good person, and there is no way he'll help a bad one. God will let you laugh again. You'll raise a roof with shouts of joy. With your enemies thoroughly discredited, their house of cards collapsed. The spoken gospel addresses what we just read by suggesting, Job's friend Bildad doesn't like what Job is saying. According to Bildad, God is always just and would never let the innocent suffer. And since Job is suffering, he can't be as innocent as he claims. Bildad implies that Job is guilty of rejecting God, which explains his suffering. If Job is truly innocent, none of this would be happening. Wow, such harsh words. And from a friend, even. Truthfully, friends, the basis of Bildad's argument about the justice of God was correct. But his idea of God's justice was not. Let me explain a bit more here from my research. Bildad's argument went like this. 
God could not be unjust, and God would not punish a just man. Therefore, Job must be unjust. Bildad felt there were no exceptions here. In his mind, Bildad divided people into the blameless and the secretly wicked. He believed that they could be recognized by watching what God did to them. So, like Eliphaz, Bildad wrongly assumed that people only suffer as a result of their sins. Unfortunately, we also see Bildad was even less sensitive and compassionate here, even going so far as to saying that Job's children died because of their wickedness. Ouch. Listen to this from First Five Suffering and Sovereignty Study. Have you ever received unsolicited advice from a friend or family member? Did their comments and suggestions create more questions and conflict instead of encouragement and real solutions? In Job 8, it is Bildad's turn to respond to Job's comments, but his words seem far from gentle and comforting. We see this friend had much to say. However, his comments lean toward an accusing tone that lacks true empathy and patience. Bildad began by saying, How can you keep on talking like this? You're talking nonsense and noisy nonsense at that. Really, Bildad? I guess he wasn't a fan of easing into a conversation. He then added more hurt to Job's shattered heart, suggesting Job's ten children must have sinned against God and that's why they received a penalty of death. How hard this must have been for a loving father to hear, especially since we previously read in chapter 1 that Job intentionally made a regular custom of sacrificing burnt offerings for each of his children, just in case they sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Because of all the personal devastation that happened, Bildad assumed Job must have sinned like his children. He pushed his uninvited point further by giving Job advice on how he could get back on good terms with God. Job chapter 8, verses 5 and 6 in the NLT read, But if you pray to God and seek the favor of the Almighty, and if you are pure and live with integrity, He will surely rise up and restore your happy home. Goodness gracious, friends. As we read those words of advice from Bildad, doesn't it seem like Job had already done what is being suggested? Job was seeking and pleading to God with all the gut honesty he could muster, desperately asking the whys and the how-comes from a crushed spirit and a bitter soul. We also know from Job chapter 1 that he was a man of integrity, considered upright and blameless by God, and yet here he remained in great pain, suffering physically, mentally, and emotionally. Life wasn't making any sense, and the real answers were still far from Job's reach. Harsh questions and harsh comments still hung in the air. And although Job's friends were giving a whole lot of advice, they didn't have the right answers, and neither did Job. What a good place for us to make a full stop and remind ourselves that if we want to be guaranteed the best advice 100% of the time, we must go to God's Word to find it. It is there that we receive clear instructions from the Lord, who knows all things and wants the very best for us. Our friends and family members may have good intentions, but they are limited in knowledge and so are we. When we receive advice from others, no matter how good it sounds or seems right to us, let's make sure we take it straight to God and see if it lines up with His Word. Honestly, if it doesn't, our best response should be thanks, but no thanks. Friends, God knows you better than anyone else, and there is so much He wants to share with you. He made sure His thoughts were divinely written down and carefully protected for thousands of years so that you could receive His best instructions, truths, and promises for whatever situation you're facing. If you are suffering, he offers words of comfort. If you are worried and afraid, he offers words of peace. If you are confused, he offers words of guidance. If you are discouraged and ready to give up, he offers words of hope. If you have a question, he has the answer. If you have a need, he has a solution. 
It's true that God places us in families and within tribes of friends who can support and encourage us during every season of life. Getting advice and help from them can sometimes be super helpful, but let's make sure that before we reach out to anyone, we reach to God first. A devotional from the Message Translation of the Bible titled Prayers Are More Helpful Than Prescriptions reads, Bildad, the second of Job's friends, was the next to speak, supporting Eliphaz's argument. But Job didn't need an argument. He needed empathy. And so do those around us who are experiencing the silence of God in the midst of their suffering. Bildad's argument didn't alleviate Job's suffering. It merely added to it. His words were like the sterile diagnosis of a doctor with no bedside manner. And then he scrawled out a prescription. For him, the misery of humankind was less real than the majesty of God. He saw Job sitting on the ash heap with sores all over his body and sorrow in his soul, yet he showed no urgency to speak on Job's behalf to God. But he felt enormous urgency to speak on God's behalf to Job. In this case, in all the cases with those who are suffering, prayers are more helpful than prescriptions. So we see that much like with Eliphaz, Bildad gave bad counsel. He told Job that he needed to repent. But again, chapter 1 told us that Job was blameless and upright, and that these problems actually occurred because of his uprightness, not as the result of sin. Job's friends were attacking him in the midst of his grief, but I believe they really thought they were on the right track. They really thought they were helping him, and that if they could just convince him to repent, all of his troubles would subside. Oh my, you'll just have to stay tuned to see how that plays out. In the meantime, though, Job chapter 9 from the message translation begins. Job continued by saying, So what's new? I know all this. The question is, how can mere mortals get right with God? If we wanted to bring our case before Him, what chance would we have? Not one in a thousand. God's wisdom is so deep, God's power so immense. Who could take Him on and come out in one piece? He moves mountains before they know what's happened, flips them on their heads on a whim. He gives the earth a good shaking up, rocks it down to its very foundations. He tells the sun, don't shine, and it doesn't. He pulls the blinds on the stars. All by himself, he stretches out the heavens and strides on the waves of the sea. He designed the Big Dipper and Orion, the Pleiades and Alpha Centauri. We'll never comprehend all the great things he does. His miracle surprises can't be counted. Somehow, though, he moves right in front of me. I don't see him. Quietly but surely, he's active and I miss it. If he steals you blind, who can stop him? Who's going to say, hey, what are you doing? God doesn't hold back on his anger. Even dragon bread monsters cringe before him. So how could I ever argue with him, construct a defense that would influence God? Even though I'm innocent, I could never prove it. I can only throw myself on the judge's mercy. If I called on God and he himself answered me, then and only then would I believe that he'd heard me. As it is, he knocks me about from pillar to post, beating me up black and blue for no good reason. He won't even let me catch my breath, piles bitterness upon bitterness. If it's a question of who's stronger, he wins, hands down. If it's a question of justice, who'll serve him the subpoena? Even though innocent, anything I say incriminates me. Blameless as I am, my defense just makes me sound worse. Believe me, I'm blameless. I don't understand what's going on. I hate my life. Since either way it ends up the same, I can only conclude that God destroys the good right along with the bad. When calamity hits and brings sudden death, he folds his arms, aloof from the despair of the innocent. He lets the wicked take over running the world. He installs judges who can't tell right from wrong. If he's not responsible, who is? 
My time is short. What's left of my life races off too fast for me to even glimpse the good. My life is going fast, like a ship under full sail, like an eagle plummeting to its prey. Even if I say I'll push all this behind me, I'll look on the bright side and force a smile. All these troubles would still be like grit in my gut since it's clear you're not going to let up. The verdict has already been handed down. Guilty. So what's the use of protests or appeals? Even if I scrub myself all over and wash myself with the strongest soap I can find, it wouldn't last. You'd push me into a pig pen, or worse, so nobody could stand me for the stink. God and I are not equals. I can't bring a case against him. We'll never enter a courtroom as peers. How I wish we had an arbitrator to step in and let me get on with my life. To break God's death grip on me. To free me from this terror so I could breathe again. And then I'd speak up and state my case boldly. As things stand, there is no way I can do it. So here we once again hear reference to a courtroom, as we did in the heavenly courtroom scenes between God and Satan, the accuser, in chapters 1 and 2. But this time it is Job requesting a personal appearance before God himself to plead his case of innocence. We will see this courtroom scene of sorts continue to develop in the chapters to come for how Job presents his case of innocence against what he believes is the unjust God of the universe. Talk about the case of the ages. You certainly won't find this one on Law & Order. Sounds intriguing, right? I think so, too. Especially as we begin to see some of our own thoughts and arguments in times of struggle represented in Job's words and quote-unquote evidence. Be sure to be closely watching for those similarities to our own thinking in times of hurt and devastation as we continue reading through, my friends. Here in chapter 9, we hear Job remark that Bildad said nothing new. Job knew that the wicked ultimately perish, but his situation confused him. Why then was he perishing? Job didn't think that his life warranted such suffering, so he wanted his case presented before God. He recognized, however, that arguing with God would be futile and unproductive. Job isn't claiming to be perfect, but he did claim to be good and faithful. While Job showed impatience towards God, he did not reject or curse God. In the beginning of chapter 9, we see Job speak about God's power for several verses. He commands a son. He does great things. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. We also see how this enormous God, who is so mighty, steps down to be in relationship with mankind, with us. Like Job says in chapter 7, verse 17, What are people that you should make so much of us, that you should think of us so often? The God of the universe is in charge of everything. But his heart isn't set on the mountains or on Orion or on the Pleiades. It's set on you and me. In all honesty, when I was reading through verses 5 through 10 the first few times, my thoughts immediately went to God's majesty and glory on display in the intricate detail found in creation and all the books and messages I love from Louis Giglio, as we previously discussed in episodes 5 and 6 in the book of Genesis. When doing a more in-depth study of these verses, though, I found that it is not what we see happening here. When looking at those verses in context, we see Job is not praising God for his greatness. Instead, he shows God's power over creation to make his case for how pointless it is to argue and debate with God. We see Job implying throughout these verses that God uses creation as a weapon against his enemies. He overturns mountains in anger. He shakes the foundations of the earth. He stops the sun from rising. He tramples the waves. Basically, Job is saying that all of creation is helpless before God, thus leaving him, as we would say in courtroom terms, with no hope of acquittal, much less exoneration in his case. Those are some pretty hard and bold accusations against God. Have you ever been there in your own struggles? In helplessly watching someone you love go through heartaches you don't understand and can't fix? Me too, friends. 
The NLT Life Application Study Note for Chapter 9, Verses 20 and 21 begins, Though I am innocent, my own mouth would pronounce me guilty. Job was saying, In spite of my good life, God is determined to condemn me. As his suffering continued, he became more impatient. Although Job remained loyal to God, he made statements he would later regret. In times of extended sickness and prolonged pain, it is natural for people to doubt, to despair, or to become impatient. During those times, people need someone to listen to them, to help them work through their feelings and frustrations. Your patience with their impatience will help them. And the spoken gospel reads this way. But Job responds that it's useless for a mortal to try to prove his innocence in God's courtroom. God is too powerful. No human can stand up to his questioning. If God commands the earth and stars against his enemies, what hope does Job have of surviving God's prosecution? Job even doubts that God will hear his case. Mortals don't get to summon deities. If God wanted, he could argue circles around Job and find a way to condemn him, even in his innocence. The point is, Job is just a man. Mortals can't argue with God and win. So Job hopes that an arbiter, an attorney, will come and allow him to approach God in his immortal power and make a case for his innocence. Unbeknownst to him, Job's desire for an arbiter, for a mediator, here anticipates Christ's role in the New Testament as mediator between God and humanity. Truthfully, he had no framework of understanding to know to ask for the amazing grace and forgiveness we experience because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So very incredible to see evidence of Jesus here in the Old Testament without Job having knowledge of what he's really needed in his defense. Amazing. Just amazing. I also found these thoughts in the Message Bible's devotional titled, At the Judge's Mercy, for chapter 9, verses 25 through 35. The imagery Job used is from the courtroom, but his defense wasn't so much for himself as for God. Since God is holy other than human, Job reasoned, how is it possible to comprehend his ways? God and I are not equals. I can't bring a case against him. And so Job bowed a beaten man and puts himself at the judge's mercy, which in the spiritual realm is the only safe place in the courtroom. Job chapter 9 verses 32 through 35 in the NLT read, God is not a mortal like me, so I cannot argue with him or take him to trial. If only there was a mediator between us, someone who could bring us together. The mediator could make God stop beating me and I would no longer live in terror of his punishment. Then I could speak to him without fear, but I cannot do that in my own strength. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you thought you knew someone well and they did something that caught you totally off guard? Job's suffering has caused him to experience new aspects of God's character. Where Job once experienced God's power in a limited way, he has now seen his power expanded. His view of God is shaken, but Job is learning how to stretch his understanding to fit the new truths. Job isn't questioning God, as Bildad has suggested, but we do find Job questioning his own understanding of God. Job, who believes that God put everything in its order, is coming to terms with the fact that God ordered his life exactly the way it is. He is all-powerful in a way that Job couldn't have even begun to understand without his suffering. God has power over good, but he has power over evil as well. He overturns mountains and shakes the foundations of the earth. He makes the sun and stars not shine. Until recently, Job experienced God so closely, but now he feels further away, distant. He realizes that God really is out of his grasp and control. God is invisible. He moves without detection or restraint. So what hope does Job have of finding him like Job so desires? Job understands that he can't contend with God, 
but that doesn't stop him from wanting to reach God. Job comes to the question of God's justice. God is seemingly punishing Job without cause, so how does that fit in with Job's view of God? As Job works through these new revelations about God's character, he is left with three options. Number one, he could just say forget it and move on with his life. But what good would that do? He would still be without God. Number two, he could attempt to cleanse himself of his sin, but he doesn't believe he has sinned, so he'd be back where he started. Number three, or he could seek out a mediator, someone who could bridge the gap between a mere mortal and the Almighty God. A mediator. Job had a very limited view of the reality of God's character and the reasoning behind his own suffering. But through all of his semi-rational reasoning, he landed on the basis of God's plan. A mediator. One who could stand between and intercede on his behalf. Someone who could indwell us and make us more than mere mortals. Someone who would lay down his life in service of his mediation. Job is right. His relationship with God is broken, but it was broken a long time ago. It was broken when sin entered the world. God's character is solid, and we are the ones who are unpredictable and unjust. He ached for something he couldn't put into words. He felt the brokenness and gave it a name, separation from God. He didn't have the benefit of knowing that Jesus would mend the brokenness between him and God, but we do. We still suffer temporarily, but we are saved from the eternal pain of separation from God through Christ. Thank you, Jesus. A study section I came across in the New Living Translation Illustrated Bible called The Righteous Suffer speaks to what is happening in chapter 9, verses 33 through 35 in this way. The book of Job invites us to examine the basis of our faith in God. Job's loss of possessions and family members and the alienation of his friends shook his faith to its foundation. However, he kept his faith by trusting in God and proved Satan's accusations to be lies. Even in his complaints, Job acknowledged that only God could provide the answers he needed. When Job wished for death, it was to gain relief until God could deal with him under more favorable conditions. When Job needed a mediator, it was to assist in finding favor with God. When Job complained that God didn't listen, it was because he knew his answers had to come from God. That is the very essence of faith. Sin does bring suffering, but the accusation that suffering people must have sinned is not necessarily true. Some today blindly follow Job's friend in equating godliness with blessing. But at its root, this perspective expresses unbelief because it refuses to realize that as it is said in Romans chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, we must also share in Christ's suffering. And what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. We are not meant to know or understand everything. Some things are for God alone to comprehend and direct according to his sovereign will. Our response should be to accept in faith what he sends us. Even when we suffer, we can trust God. Okay, friends, let's now move on to read from Job chapter 10. I can't stand my life. I hate it. I'm putting it all out on the table. All the bitterness of my life, I'm holding nothing back. Job prayed. Here's what I want to say. Don't, God, bring in a verdict of guilty without letting me know the charges you're bringing. How does this fit into what you once called good? giving me a hard time, spurning me, a life you shaped by your very own hands and then blessing the plots of the wicked? You don't look at things the way we mortals do. You're not taken in by appearances, are you? Unlike us, you're not working against a deadline. You have all eternity to work things out. So what's this all about anyway, this compulsion to dig up some dirt, to find some skeleton in my closet? You know good and well I'm not guilty. You also know no one can help me. 
You may be like a handcrafted piece of pottery, and now you are going to smash me to pieces? Don't you remember how beautifully you worked my clay? Will you now reduce me to a mud pie? Oh, that marvel of conception. What a miracle of skin and bone, muscle and brain. You gave me life itself and incredible love. You watched and guarded every breath I took. But you never told me about this part. I should have known there was more to it. That if I so much as missed a step, you'd notice and pounce. Wouldn't let me get by with the thing. If I'm truly guilty, I'm doomed. But if I'm innocent, it's no better. I'm still doomed. My belly is full of bitterness. I'm up to my ears in a swamp of affliction. I try to make the best of it, try to brave it out, but you're too much for me, relentless like a lion on the prowl. You line up fresh witnesses against me. You compound your anger and pile on the grief and pain. So why did you have me born? I wish no one has ever laid eyes on me. I wish I'd never lived a stillborn, buried without ever having breathed. Isn't it time to call it quits on my life? Can't you let up and let me smile just once before I die in and buried? Before I'm nailed into my coffin, sealed into the ground, and banished for good to the land of the dead, blind in the final dark. So as we see by the end of chapter 9, Job's attempts to forget his complaints against God failed. So Job declares here in the beginning of chapter 10 that he must now speak freely. Job's speech is at times shocking. He addresses God frankly and forcefully, accusing him of acting unjustly and demanding answers. While we will see in chapter 40 and on that Job's later responses to God are much more subdued, God never condemns his many complaints against him throughout this book. I know this NIV Faith Life study note we just read continues a bit of a teaser of the end of this book, but the heaviness of heart we see Job displaying here made me think that perhaps we all needed a bit of hope and relief, even, to know that God does not consider this type of questioning or complaint to him as out of line. Just one more reminder that God can handle all of our emotions in any situation because he not only created them, but knows what is going on in our hearts and minds anyway. Job is providing such a strong example to us here that we should take our hurts, confusion, questions, all of it, to the one who truly understands all we are going through. As I consider for a moment that we are all now fully aware that Job's friends comforted him best when they sat in silence for seven days, we could also consider that what we perceive as God's silence is perhaps a tender mercy to our human hearts, as we may never fully understand this side of heaven the purposes our struggles in life have in God's plans that even in the silence, we can trust the God who made us and loves us so deeply, the God who hears the cries of our hearts and holds us gently in his arms to comfort us in the confusion of what we can't understand, to give us the strength and hope to get through the unthinkable even. I know that may be a jumble of seemingly random thoughts from M, but I hope we are hearing in all these words this truth. Regardless of the outcomes of the hard situations in life, when we take our hurts, thoughts, and complaints, all of it, to God, we can be assured we never have and never will walk alone. In one particularly dark season in my own life, a close friend reminded me often that no matter how dark it all seemed, no matter how alone I felt, God never took his hand off my head. The understanding that I never walked alone and was under God's care and protection and even the darkest of times. So good to consider and so hard to comprehend, but still 100% true, my friends. The New Living Translation Life Application Note for chapter 10, verse 1 says, Job began to wallow in self-pity. When we face baffling affliction, our pain lures us toward feeling sorry for ourselves. At this point, we are only one step from self-righteousness, where we keep track of life's injustices and say, look what happened to me, how unfair it is. 
We may feel like blaming God in these moments. Remember that life's trials, whether allowed by God or sent by God, can be means of development and refinement. When facing trials, ask, what can I learn and how can I grow, rather than who did this to me and how can I get out of it? Continuing on to verse 3, we see Job sarcastically ask God if it seems good to despise his own creation. Ouch. My research shows that in this verse, Job uses the Hebrew word tav here, meaning good, the same word God uses to describe creation in Genesis 1. I thought that was an interesting note. Job then goes on to blatantly accuse God of injustice, of favoring the wicked in addition to oppressing an innocent man. Real feelings, real confusion, real lashing out and hurt and anger, real life. And our very real God can handle it all. Such a relief that we can go there with the only one who truly, truly understands us. Do you remember all of our talk about how our God isn't afraid of our doubts, so we don't have to be either? How the strongest faith is not a faith that never doubts, but instead is a faith that grows through the doubts. Don't miss this truth, my friends, as we look in the book of Job for how he pours his doubts and complaints out to God. And spoiler alert, by the end we'll come out of all of this messy chaos, not with answers or complete understanding even, but with a stronger faith regardless. Job chapter 10 verse 4 in the NLT reads, Are your eyes like those of a human? Do you see things only as people see them? Verse 5 Suffering and Sovereignty study says, It's tempting to believe that we can understand how God's mind works. We are created in His image. Surely that must mean God thinks like we do. Yet how can the natural think like the supernatural? How can the created think like the Creator? As humans, we are limited in our understanding of God because we are placed in a specific spot in time. All we can really know is what we have experienced. God, on the other hand, is outside of time. He sees the beginning and the end, while we only see the middle. When we assign human motives to God's actions, we can develop wrong beliefs about His character, and our frustration of not understanding can lead us to places of wrong thinking. We see this as Job continues to wrestle with God's motives for the suffering. At this point, Job feels he has nothing to lose. He loathes his life and because of that will give free reign to his complaint. In his frustration, he begins to question God's motives, which he believes shows God's character. Does God take pleasure in oppressing the righteous? Does he affirm the plans of the wicked? Is he like a human and he looks for faults even though he knows one is innocent? Does he create only to destroy? In this moment, Job is convinced he knows God's heart and mind based on what he has experienced. And yet, as readers of this story, we have the advantage of seeing the bigger picture. We know God isn't doing any of what Job accuses. But there are some things we can't know. Yes, we have 42 chapters of Job's story recorded. But we can't know how Job's story fits in with God's bigger plans. God has a purpose and plan that goes beyond our lives, and we aren't given access to this kind of information. Perhaps we can't even humanly comprehend it. It's possible we strive to make God understood in human terms, but He simply can't be completely known. Romans 11.34 confirms this, saying, Who has known the mind of the Lord, and who is His counselor? 1 Corinthians 2.11 says, For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So where does that leave us? We have a choice. We can believe God is good all the time. In doing so, we admit there are things we might never understand, things we can't reconcile in our humanness. Releasing our need to know will lead us to God's peace. Or we can see the pain and suffering in this world and decide God must be unkind and against us, 
But then that would be a contradictory to what scripture tells us about God. Job works his way to believing in God's goodness. He doesn't allow his negative thoughts to take hold. Job offers us a model of how to wrestle well with what we can't know. God welcomes our questions and our doubts. We see that throughout scripture. But if we assign characteristics to God that are against what the Bible says to be true, we will eventually pull away from God. We won't feel safe or secure. I don't understand why God doesn't come into this world and sweep it clean. I know one day he will. And until then, I pray for a heart that is settled knowing God is good and is for me, even though I can't see the bigger picture. The NIV Faith Life Study Note for chapter 10, verse 7 reads, You know that I am not guilty, says, Job has steadfastly maintained his innocence and accused God of not caring about his suffering. Now, for the first time, Job asserts that God also knows that he is innocent, but still punishes him. Job cries out for a deliverer, a rescuer, but despairs of one coming since it seems God himself is so set against him. We definitely see the courtroom arguments continuing to unfold here, don't we? Moving on in our study of Job chapter 10, the NLT version of verses 8 and 9 reads, You formed me with your hands, you made me, yet now you completely destroy me. Remember that you made me from dust, will you turn me back to dust so soon? When I came to these verses in my study, I was immediately reminded of a chapter I previously read called Dust in the It's Not Supposed to Be This Way book by Lisa Turkhurst. Listen to these various excerpts from the chapter as she shares with us her personal perspective about life struggles and dust. She begins, I grabbed my chest while tears slipped down my cheeks in an unending stream. The pain in my heart wasn't physical, but the stabbing emotional hurt was so intense I could barely breathe. My hands were shaking. My eyes were wide with fear. My mouth felt paralyzed. My life had gone from feeling full and whole to being obliterated beyond recognition. I'd been hurt plenty of times in my life, but nothing like this. After 25 years of marriage partnership, I had no choice but to tell my husband, I love you and I can forgive you, but I cannot share you. Never had I felt more shattered and alone. And then, adding more salt to the wound, people started talking. I'd kept this hell I was walking through private telling only a few friends and counselors. They were tender and helped me in ways I'll never be able to repay. There are some really good people on this earth but others weren't so understanding or compassionate. And now the realities and rumors were crushing me. I was experiencing the death of my quote-unquote normal life, but people don't seem to have funerals for normal. I was dealing with extreme grief from losing the person I loved the very most in this world. But instead of visiting a gravesite and mourning a death, I was visiting the rumor mill and being devastated by all the theories and opinions. My pillow was soaked with tears, of which only I knew the real source. Not only was I dealing with deep personal pain, but I was experiencing firsthand the way broken people sometimes contribute to the brokenness of others. We live in a broken world where broken things happen, so it's not surprising that things get broken in our lives as well. But what about those times when things aren't just broken, but shattered beyond repair? Shattered to the point of dust. At least when things are broken, there's some hope you can glue the pieces back together. But what if there aren't even pieces to pick up in front of you? You can't glue dust. It's hard to hold dust. What was once something so very precious is now reduced to nothing but weightless powder even the slightest wind could carry away. We feel desperately hopeless. Dust begs us to believe the promises of God no longer apply to us, that the reach of God falls just short of where we are, and that the hope of God has been snuffed out by the consuming darkness all around us. We want God to fix it all, edit this story so it has a different ending, 
repair this heartbreaking reality. But what if fixing, editing, and repairing isn't at all what God has in mind for us in this shattering? What if this time God desires to make something completely brand new, right now, on this side of eternity? No matter how shattered our circumstances may seem, dust is the exact ingredient God loves to use. We think the shattering in our lives could not possibly be for any good, but what if shattering is the only way to get dust back to its basic form so that something new can be made? We can see dust as a result of an unfair breaking, or we can see dust as a crucial ingredient. Of all the things God could have used to make man, he chose to use dust. Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Dust doesn't have to signify the end. Dust is often what must be present for the new to begin. Lisa then goes on to say in this chapter, When I wrote my last book, Uninvited, I felt I had wisdom to share on the very painful subject of rejection. God had helped me to make so much progress with the painful rejections of my past that I felt certain I could help others. I pictured my reader sitting knee-deep in rejection's grief, feeling less alone because she could sense me there with her. She could rely on the fact that my teachings weren't good-sounding theories, but hard-fought-for truths. She would know that I felt the depth of her pain, so she could trust there was hope for her healing as well. I wrote the book. I turned it over to the editors. I checked that assignment off my list. Life moved on. And then I found out about my husband's affair. Life as I knew it stopped. It turned upside down. All the best parts were shaken loose. The more I tried to grab hold of what was falling down around me, the more I realized my utter lack of control. As I described at the beginning of this chapter, I've been hurt plenty of times in my life, but nothing like this. Things crashed. Things broke beyond repair. Things went from being whole to being reduced to dust. I crawled into bed. I willed the world to stop spinning. I wanted everything to pause and stop hurting me, but nothing did. And that's one of the most devastating realities of the dust times in our lives. We need the world to stop spinning for a while. We need things to pause. We need the celebrations to cease long enough to let us work through our grief. We need people with expectations to stop emailing and calling us. We need our schedules to clear. But my calendar didn't get that memo. It didn't magically erase all the things I'd agreed to do when my life felt predictable and whole, including this book I'd written on rejection. It was due to be released in six months, but there was one final step required. I had to read through the entire manuscript one last time. I stared at the typed-out words strung together page after page. I wanted it all to go away. The book, the rejection, the timing of it all. Yes, especially the timing. It seemed like such a cruel twist of irony. And what was so very crazy is that in the months leading up to this devastation, the one thing I kept hearing God say to me was, trust my timing. But it was the timing that seemed so very confusing. It was a timing that fed this intense awareness that no matter how well I plan things, I can't control them. No matter how well I follow the rules, do what's right, and seek to obey God with my whole heart, I can't control my life. I can't control God. It's hard to type those words because I don't want to control God. Until I do. When his timing seems questionable, his lack of intervention seems hurtful, and his promises seem doubtful, I get afraid. I get confused. And left alone with these feelings, I can't help but feel disappointed that God isn't doing what I assume a good God should do. I want to assume that my definition of best should be God's definition of best, and that my definition of good should be God's definition of good. I want to write the story of my life according to all my assumptions. Therefore, it's impossible to escape the truth that I don't want to relinquish control to God. I want to take control from God, and then I make the most dangerous assumption of all. I could surely do all of this better than God. Disappointment happens every time I come face to face with my absolute inability to control people, circumstances, and timing. 
If I could control all these things, I arrange my own version of perfection. I'd be the boss of my life and those in my life, and I'd do exactly what Adam and Eve did. I'd have a love affair with my own desires. I'd sell my soul for a lie laced with poison. The very things that I assume would give me a better life are the exact things that would eventually kill me. But here's the good news. Even when we follow in Eve's footsteps, when we try to take control and make assumptions and misunderstand God on every level, he still has a plan. A good plan. A plan to make something from dust. And eventually we will understand that God hasn't denied us the best. He's offering us the very best by offering himself. He is our only source of perfection on this side of eternity, and he sees a perfect plan for our dust. We may be afraid of all the disappointments of this broken world, but God isn't afraid. He's aware, so very aware of his ultimate plans and purposes. It isn't to keep us from getting shattered. It's to keep our souls connected, so deeply connected to himself. And let's be honest, if we weren't ever disappointed, we'd settle for the shallow pleasures of this world rather than addressing the spiritual desperation of our souls. We don't think about fixing things until we realize they are broken. And even then, we don't call in the experts until we surrender to the realization that we cannot fix things on our own. If our souls never ached with disappointments and disillusionments, we'd never fully admit and submit our need to God. If we weren't ever shattered, we'd never know the glorious touch of the potter making something glorious out of dust, out of us. It took me forever to focus enough to read the first couple paragraphs of Uninvited, and then the first couple of pages turned into the first couple of chapters. Tears slid down my face and dropped onto my shirt. I pressed the loose pages to my chest. God had given me the book last year that I'd be so desperate to read this year. The reader, I'd imagined, she was me. Maybe the timing and the subject matter of my book wasn't a cruel twist of irony. Maybe it was just right, for me and my situation, and for everyone else who'd soon encounter uninvited. And maybe the freshness of my own rejection would make the message I'd soon be delivering that much more authentic. I wouldn't be teaching only from past perspectives and experiences, but from a deeper awareness of just how painful the healing process can be. I wouldn't have written my story this way. I would have avoided anything that looks like dust. I think we all would. There isn't any timing that seems like the right timing to be shattered into dust. There isn't any plan God could present where I would be willing to be broken into unglueable pieces. I just wouldn't. And what a tragedy that would be. My controlling things would prevent the dust required for God to make the new he desperately desires for me. And isn't that what all promises hinge on? Old becoming new. Dead things coming to life. Good from evil. Darkness turning to light. If I want his promises, I have to trust his process. I have to trust that first comes the dust, and then comes the making of something even better with us. God isn't ever going to forsake you, but he will go to great lengths to remake you. What if disappointment is really the exact appointment your soul needs to radically encounter God? Oh, friends, I am not sure what I could possibly say right now to add anything whatsoever to this point of view about dust from Lisa Turkhurst. I hope you just allow yourself to sit in these thoughts for a few minutes to process what you just heard. Maybe even do a rewind back to replay these words again. There is so very much power in this perspective about the dust moments in our lives. Maybe your world has been shattered into dust. Oh, I have been there, friend. Maybe the unthinkable happened and you're in deep personal pain, far more than you could have ever imagined. As Lisa said, often we want God to fix it back to what it once was. But what if he wants to create something completely new? Do we need to be in control? Or can we trust God is offering the best of himself to us? Please, please, please be sure to press pause here to process some of these questions as related to your own lives, your own shattered dust moments. 
It will be time well spent as we consider the ways God is using these dust moments in our lives more than we could ever imagine at first glance, or the 500th glance even, right? Moving on in our study, a note I found in the NLT Life Application Study Bible about chapter 10, verses 13 and 14 says, In frustration, Job jumped to the false conclusion that God was out to get him. Wrong assumptions lead to wrong conclusions. We dare not take our limited experiences and jump to conclusions about life in general. If you find yourself doubting God, remember that you don't have to have all the facts. God only wants the very best for your life. Many people endure great pain, but ultimately, they find some greater good come from it. When you're struggling, don't assume the worst. Ugh. Jumping straight to the worst seems to be my own default when life gets hard. I'm trying to flip the script with truths from God's word in these moments, but I so wish we were running out of time today's episode because this is an important practice for us to learn in our faith journey most especially in times of suffering. Let me just put a pin in that thought, and we will revisit it in more detail in a future episode. I am guessing Job and his friends will give us plenty of opportunities to come back to this idea of not jumping to conclusions and our need to flip the script in our minds to focus on truth. Stay tuned. Let me extend this challenge to all of us, a challenge I previously heard on the Bible Recap Podcast. Tara Lee Cobble said, This book can be challenging for some people. Maybe it tries their patience or just feels like a real downer. Interestingly, though, a lot of people say that Job is their favorite book of the Bible, but most of them don't feel that way until they've read all the way through. So if I may, let me offer you a challenge that one of my team members likes to present to people. She says, don't quit in Job. You can quit before Job or you can quit after Job, but don't quit in Job. I love that advice. And obviously it's too late for you to quit before Job. So you're stuck with us. This book ends with praise and triumph. So be sure to stick around for the party. We're getting closer to it every day. I hope you accept the challenge along with me. You may or may not remember when I said these words all the way back in episode one, and they are still true today. I encourage us to keep coming back to our Bibles on the hard days and the good days, the confusing days and the aha days, because I know with certainty that we will surely discover God, Jesus, and even ourselves as we work our way through the books of the Bible, and more specifically, the book of Job, one chapter at a time. Before we wrap up our time together today, can I just say that this is so much fun for me to be on this journey with you, and I love it even more and more after every episode we get together for. With that said, will you please join me in prayer? Father, this world is broken, and broken things happen. Even still, we can't help but feel utterly shattered and disillusioned when heartbreak is part of our stories. Truthfully, we feel heartbroken and more than a bit undone for Job just reading from his story as well. We don't like this. We don't like dust. But we are learning that dust is one of your favorite ingredients to use when making something new. And we are choosing to believe you are working right now to this very thing in our lives, just like you were in Job's life. We know you will never forsake us, but that you will go to great lengths to remake us. Help us to trust in your goodness, your plan, your timing, your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. So, are you a person who hears me talking pretty much every episode about writing a review and thinks to yourself, oh, I want to do that. Hey, I need to do that. Guess what? Today could be your day to do that. (laughs) I myself am guilty of the same thing with a podcast I love to listen to, but I promise those stars and reviews really do help people find this podcast to study alongside us, my friends. I know I've been that person before, and sometimes I just need a reminder. If that is you too, here's your reminder. (laughs) I absolutely love for you to drop a five-star review and write a couple sentences about what the Open Our Bibles Together podcast means to you. 
Okay, I'll let you go now because I think there was something that I heard you mention you wanted to go do. <laughs> Thanks in advance. I so appreciate it, friends. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends.